Hello, this is Richard Outram, and welcome to the Prepare for Growth podcast series, bite-sized wisdom for leadership and personal development. So thank you for taking time out to join me. I'm so grateful for this unique opportunity. Okay, and in this week's podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce Dr. John Demartini, CEO and founder of the Demartini Institute and world-renowned specialist in human behavior, author, and global educator. He has authored 40 books, which have been translated into 39 different languages and has shared the stage with some of the world's most influential people, including Sir Richard Branson, Stephen Covey, Deepak Chopra, Wayne Dyer, Steve Wozniak, and many others. Dr. Demartini has developed a series of solutions, applications across all markets, sectors, and age groups, which is presented on Larry King Live, CNN, CNBC, and as a contributor to Oprah Magazine, amongst hundreds of other magazines. He's an international best-selling author of The Values Factor and 39 other books, and has studied over 299 academic disciplines throughout the past 48 years, revolving around maximizing human awareness, potential, and leadership. As a global educator, he has worked on entrepreneurs, board members, and CEOs at companies including IBM, Shell Oil, Merrill Lynch, and more. He has helped thousands of people transform their lives according to their highest values to create their life masterpiece. I actually read one of Dr. Demartini's book, Inspired Destiny, several years ago and loved its practicality. And I remember each chapter ending with inspired thoughts and words of power, which did change my life as well, Dr. Demartini. So thank you for that. And Dr. Demartini's wisdom bite for this episode is the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your questions. Dr. Demartini, welcome on the show. I am so thrilled to have you here. Thank you for making the time. This is going to be a fabulous session. Did you want to add anything else to the introduction, Dr. Demartini? No, no, you did more than enough. And uh, uh, thank you for your patience because I had a glitch on the last time we were, <laughs> we were to schedule this and that was an oversight on my part. So I, I got humbled so I'm grateful that you were uh, open and receptive to rescheduling. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you, Dr. Mir. Life happens, so we're all good. Okay, first segment, <laughs> what have you learned, Dr. Demartini? And so I wanted to kick it off with, what is the Demartini method? Well, the Demartini method is <clears throat> a series of questions that you ask yourself or somebody else asks you that makes you become fully conscious of information that you have been unconscious about and allows you to see a hidden order in the apparent chaos that you may be facing and allows you to transform emotional vicissitudes and baggage that are weighing you down to lighten you up and be appreciative to life. So it's a cognitive exercise that I've been using and developing now for 50 years and um, I've taught thousands and thousands thousands of people of it and we have thousands of people disseminating it out there in the world and it's it's it has thousand applications <laughs> it could be helping in business it could help in relationships it could help in social causes conflict resolutions um, help people deal with grief and I mean there's so many applications of it that um I'm very blessed to be able to 
you know, work and developing this. I had a dream to develop this when I was young at 18 and um, been working on it ever since. And yeah, it's a it's a form a new form of psychological approach to managing challenges that people face so they can see life on the way, not in the way. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Life um, on the way, not in the way. I love that. And you've also mentioned see the up and down and the down of the up. Just just go a little bit further on that one, please, Dr. Demartini. Well, <clears throat> when you're infatuated with somebody, let's say you got a new boyfriend or girlfriend, you're conscious of the upsides, unconscious of the downside. Yep. And when you're resentful to somebody... <clears throat> they're conscious of the downside and unconscious of the upside. And then days, weeks, months, or years later, you'll eventually discover both sides. So you'll have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process normally. But if you do the method in a matter of minutes to hours, uh, you can discover both sides of the individual and get to know and love that individual for the wholeness they are, not the fantasy that you subjectively bias and interpreted them initially. So in business, sometimes people skew with subjective bias uh, their interpretation of new opportunities or new challenges and exaggerate or minimize the opportunity or challenge. And then they don't respond in a really objective way. They overreact. And so the tool can be helpful to help you have a cognitive reappraisal and find the side, the upsides to the downsides, downsides, the upsides. The brain has an area of the brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala adds valency, emotional, positive or negative charges on events. <clears throat> but the brain in the amygdala uh, has a capacity with asking quality questions that bring you back into balance to see the ups to the downs and the downs to the ups to bring them back into equilibrium. The yep. moment you're in equilibrium, you have objectivity and you act wisely instead of emotionally react as a survival mechanism. When we're balanced, we're strategic and we act with foresight. When we're imbalanced, we're emotionally reactive and we act with hindsight. And foresight is way farther productive compared to hindsight. Absolutely. And, and, and you talk about embracing the duality of life or <clears throat> In other words, the two-sided being, which I wholeheartedly believe in. I've uh, I've tried to live this for most of my life um, through teachings and, and otherwise. So go a little bit more on that point. The duality of life or being a two-sided being? Well, <clears throat> if I walked up to you yeah. and I said, Richard, you are always kind, never cruel, always nice, never mean always generous, never stingy, always positive, never negative, always giving, never taking, always considered, never considered, always peaceful, never wrathful, always positive, never negative. Would you believe me? No, I would well, your own, your, your own BS meter inside would go off and you'd be thinking of the times when you were yelling and screaming and you know, stingy and everything else. You'd be immediately popping those in your head and thinking, uh, not exactly, because your intuition would pop out the other side to, to make you realize you had the other side. And if I said to you, Richard, you're always mean, you're never nice, you're always cruel, you're never kind, always negative, never positive, the same thing would happen. But now you'd be thinking of the times, I've been nice, I've been generous, I've been nice. But if I went to you and I said, Richard, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel. When you feel somebody's supporting your values, you can be nice as a pussycat. When somebody's challenging it, you can be cruel as a tiger. 
you're sometimes you're generous, sometimes you're stingy, sometimes you're this, sometimes you're that. You would immediately go, now that's true. You would know with certainty that that was true, where if I try to convince you you're one side or the other, you would not believe it. So when people admire you, it's not believable. When they de despise you, it's not really believable. When they love you, it's believable. You know, there's a real love. So you're not going to run into somebody that's one-sided, but you are going to run into people with both sides. So to have an expectation of both sides is an objective pursuit. But to have an expectation of one side is a fantasy or a nightmare, um, and it was non-sustainable. You can't, no one can sustain one-sidedness. So you might as well have a life that is appreciative with expectations. If you have an unrealistic expectation, you're going to be let down. But if you have a realistic expectation that people are going to have both sides, you're not going to be let down. You're going to get what you expect, and then you're more stable. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So one of the key tenets of um, what you bring to the world here, Dr. Demartini, is the importance of living your true hierarchy <clears throat> of values and your purpose. Why is that so important? <clears throat> well, every human being has a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most to least important in their life that they live by. All of their perceptions, their decisions, and their actions are impacted by this hierarchy of values. Uh, I have a high value on teaching and learning. I have a low value on cooking and driving. Yeah. I haven't cooked since I was 24, and I haven't driven in 32 years, more than 32 years. So I don't do low-priority things. I Because anytime you do low-priority things, you devalue yourself. Anytime you do high-priority things, you value yourself. So if you prioritize your life and fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, that are meaningful, that feel purposeful, your day doesn't fill up with low priority distractions that demeaning you and that depurpose you and in a sense distract you. So if you don't fill your day with high priority actions that are inspiring to you and high priority challenges that inspire you, you're going to keep attracting challenges you don't want to deal with. So it's important to prioritize your life, prioritize what you're doing, prioritize what you're spending your money on, prioritize how you're spending your energy, prioritizing who you're hanging out with, prioritizing as much as possible in life, it gives you a competitive advantage. So let's talk about the quality of questions. What are the key questions, Dr. Demartini, that should be asked to determine your hierarchy of values? Well, I don't want to use the word should because then that's an imposed imperative on some outside authority. I want you to go inside and be honest with yourself. But I'll say that there are seven questions I found very useful. What is it I would absolutely love to do in life? that is deeply meaningful and inspiring that could contribute to the world and serve people that, that inspires me that serves people. That's a great question. Yeah. The second question is, is how can I get handsomely and beautifully paid to do that? Because that way your vocation is your vacation and your vacation is your vocation and you're doing something you love to do and you're getting paid for it. So you're not having a Monday morning blues, Wednesday hump days. Thank God it's Friday's week friggin' in in mentality a schizophrenic life where you're working, doing something you hate, and then spending money on something you don't need. <clears throat> so the second one is, what? how can I get handsome and beautifully paid to do what I really love? The third one is, what are the highest priority actions I could do today and each day to move me in the direction of making that become real? Number four is, what obstacles might I run into and how do I solve in advance with foresight instead of hindsight? The next one is, what worked and what didn't work today? along that journey. Next one is, 
how could I do it more effectively and efficiently tomorrow? And the last question is, is out of whatever happened today, no matter what happened today, how is it helping me get that objective and hold myself accountable and do not go to bed at night until that's answered? So you don't go to bed with baggage, you go to bed with fuel and you rest with calmness and, and centeredness and no noise in the brain. Those seven questions are very valuable in awakening in you an enthusiastic pursuit of something deeply meaningful that you will not have to be motivated extrinsically to do. Got it. Beautiful questions, Dr. Michael. Thank you for sharing those. <clears throat> there was one which came up, and I can't remember where I read it, but it was to really kind of understand the values in your life. One of the questions is, what is missing in your life? Now, I'm not sure about that one. You, 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 you Let me hear your point of view on that one. What is missing in your life? Does that expose and begin to surface what you truly value? Well, <clears throat> as it was stated in early ancient Greece, our voids impact our values, determine our values. Yeah. So if we perceive ourselves not having money, we may search for money. We perceive we don't have a relationship, we may search for life. We don't perceive we don't have health, we search for help. Whatever we perceive is most missing can become most important. Yes. But I also, um, there's nothing actually missing. It's in a form that we are not recognizing and honoring. <clears throat> I had a lovely dinner last night with a woman who'd never met me before that happened to be the mother of a husband and wife team that I happened to be invited to go to dinner with. They brought their mother, his mother-in-law, her actual mother. And she was single and she was probably in her 50s and was wanting to find another man in her life. And I said, uh, do you mind if I ask you some questions? She says, no. I said, do you have something to write with and write on? And so we asked the people at the restaurant if they could bring us some paper and some pen. <clears throat> what are you looking for in a relationship? I mean, if you had to put a magic wand together, what are you looking for in a relationship? And, you know, a woman usually has a pretty good list of fantasies that she wants, just like men. <laughs> and I said, let's write them down. Okay. And then I said, now, have you ever been with an individual that didn't have also downsides? She goes, no. I said, my experience is there's no such thing as a trait that you're looking for without the opposite trait accompanying it, like its shadow chasing it. I said, so if he's considerate, he's probably going to have moments of inconsiderate. If he's generous, he's also going to have moments when you do things that challenge his values and he's not going to want to pay for it. And so let's put both sides down because that one you can obtain. A one-sided man, they stop making those molds in Disneyland. <laughs> they don't occur. Yep. <laughs> but a, a, a ah. double-sided individual is obtainable. So if you set up a fantasy, you're going after something that's going to lead you to a nightmare. You know, I would say depression is a comparison of your current reality to a fantasy you keep being addicted to. So once we made that list and the opposite list, and she saw the reason behind that, I said, now, and this is fun because the daughter and the son-in-law is listening in. And this is really quite fun because they're, they're watching their mom in the hot seat, right? <laughs> and so I said, so who in your life is providing you this trait right now? Because nothing's actually missing. It's just in a form you're overlooking. And it's not matching the fantasy form. So who's providing that trait? And she goes, and she looks at her daughter, and, and, and her daughter kind of goes, and she knew who it was. And she goes, yeah, I've got a guy that's, that's playing that role. I said, write his name down. And does it match the amount that you're looking for? No. Then who else? 
Yeah, one of my clients. Put that down. Good. Who else? Okay, there's another guy who's the husband of a friend of mine who we tease each other and he's playing a bit of that trade. Okay, now you put all three of those people is the, the amount of what you're looking for in a man. She, the guy, she goes, yeah. I said, now, who's playing the other, opposite side? Right. She looks at her daughter right. again and she goes, because could, she could see it. She knew who it was. She goes, yeah, I got that one. I said, put the name down. Is that sufficient to counterbalance that? Are those balanced? She goes, easily. I said, you're thinking that this is more this way than this way? She goes, yeah. I said, who else is playing this side? There's somebody else. Took her a couple minutes, and then she goes, okay, yeah, there's another guy that's in my business that I interact with periodically that plays that role now. I think about it. Put him down there. Is it balanced yet? She goes, yeah, it is. It's weird. So I'm, I get both. I get, that's what life gives you. It gives you two sides. You don't want to get one without the other. They're always paired like a yin and yang. I said, let's go to the next one. I went down that list. And there were, I think, 16 things we did. It took about 30, 40 minutes. And went down that list, and we sat down and integrated all that. And I said, so can you see that you have all of what you're looking for in your life right now? And she goes, I do. I said, now. She said, well, will, will I ever get it in one man? I said, no, they don't make those. <laughs> they don't make that. They don't, they don't make one man's one-sided men. You're going to get it in one or many. It's called the law of the one to many. Yes. I said, if and, if and if you have been wounded in past relationships, when you're with men that have those traits, and then the opposite came, and you were avoiding the opposite trait, you'll be searching for a one-sided individual, and you'll, you won't find it, and you'll be stuck with a variety of people playing both sides unconsciously. And she goes, so you think that's what I'm doing? I said, you tell me. Because if you have a relationship that where a guy had this trait you liked, but they also had this trait you didn't like and you avoided them and you don't want to be around them because you didn't want to have to deal with that side. You're going to be trying to get a one-sided man and they don't exist. And that what you search for, you attract its opposite to break your addiction to it, to try to teach you how to love both sides in people because they want to be loved for their wholeness, not their part yeah. that you're projecting your fantasy. Anyway, we went through this whole thing and she sat there and she goes, so because of my wounds, I've structured my life consciously and unconsciously in this format to protect me from those wounds so I can get everything I want in a way that I'm not having to deal with the wounds. I said, that's right. She goes, wow, this is enlightening. And I said, now, if we go to those wounds and clear those wounds, you can reestablish it in one individual as long as you're not pursuing fantasies and you're embracing both sides of an individual. You're not going to you're not going to avoid those behaviors that you've been trying to avoid. It's a waste of time. And by the way, when you avoided those behaviors in the last boyfriend, who took them on? And she goes, "You're right. These people showed up." I said, "And before you had that boyfriend, who took them on?" And she said, "The part the prior boyfriend." I said, "Who before that?" another boyfriend. I said, you've been avoiding a particular behavior. Trace it back to where does it start? She says, my dad. I said, so you didn't love a dad. So anything you're not loving in your parents and your dad is you're trying to avoid. You keep running into, don't you? She goes, I do. I said, what was the benefit of your dad being that way? It made me independent. Do you have a company today? Are you an entrepreneur? I am. Did you thank your dad? I never saw it. 
I said, so these men, when they have those behaviors, is it keeping you independent and not dependent? It is. And I'm, I have, and the fantasy person would be, I would give up my, my autonomy. I said, that's right. And you innately don't want to give up all your autonomy and be sacrificed and have a man run you. Oh, no. I said, then it's all on track. Nothing's missing. She just sat there and go, I'm just going to have to sleep on this one. This is overwhelming to me. I had no idea I was going to have this at, at, at dinner time tonight. I said, well, nothing's ever missing. It's in a form that we're not honoring because we have fantasies blocking us from seeing the reality of both sides. Right, right. That's a beautiful story. And and just the the shift in mindset, Dr. Martini, with, with some questions that you asked is just absolutely fabulous. And obviously the 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 core topic of, of this podcast. So so how does understanding another person's highest value improve communication effectiveness? Well, everybody wants to be loved for who they are. Yeah. <clears throat> and their their ontological identity revolves around their highest value. So my highest value is teaching. I've been doing it 50 years. I do it seven days a week. And nobody has to remind me. I don't need extrinsic motivation to do it. I'm not needing motivation to do it. I, I love it. It's inspiring. I, I do it every day, you know. And so whatever's highest on your value, you intrinsically are driven to do. And your identity revolves around it. So because I love teaching, if somebody comes to me and said, well, he's that teacher guy, I go, yeah, that's me. But on a lower value, which are disowned parts, if they came to me and said, well, he's that cook or he's that driver, I go, can't relate to it. I haven't driven a car in 32 years and I haven't cooked since I was 24. I don't relate to that. So things low on your values, you don't, you disown. And things high in your values, you own. You identify yourself with it and you disidentify yourself by lower extrinsic drives. So anything that needs motivation from the outside is a derivative value. It's not you. Anything that's driven from the inside is a non-derivative value and it's you. So people want to be loved for that. So if you take the highest value of an individual or the top three, let's say, and ask how specifically is them pursuing their top three highest values and living authentically, helping me do the same, live my top three values and live authentically. And if you answer that question 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 times, the more you're going to deeply appreciate them. I say, keep asking that question and answering that question and be accountable to answer it until you get tears of gratitude for seeing how they're, who they are is helping you be who you want to be. And then turn it around and how are you, what you're dedicated to helping them do the same. I can guarantee it. I can guarantee it. I, I, I bet people on it. I won bets every time. Take any two people that want to kill each other and have them do that exercise for three hours and they'll be having their arms around each other. Wow. Guaranteed. Powerful. powerful. It reestablishes it. You can reestablish your relationship very powerfully. And and that applies. I've got a 24-year-old son, 21-year-old son, and obviously my wife as a family, we've got an extended family. Those questions, I assume, would apply the same way to improve parenting and family relationships. Exactly. I use that for uh, leadership in government, leadership yes. in corporations, leading managers, and executives, executives, managers, managers, supervisors, supervisors, employees, employees, people that they're they're selling to, relationships, social events, every human being that's in a relationship with any other human being, the way you develop a relationship that's respectful is to be able to link highest values between those two people. Guaranteed. I took in Japan, I took 66 corporate consultants through a training program there. And these were the leading consultants for Hitachi and Panasonic and 
you know, a site pharmaceutical company and uh, Japanese Electronic Computer Corporation and uh, unique, unique, a lot of major companies there. And, and I had these consultants and they didn't know each other. These 66 people didn't know each other. They're all different, different parts of Tokyo and, and the surrounding areas. And they came there and we had to pair off with people. So we had 33 pairs. They didn't know each other. I showed them how to determine people's values and their highest values by my value determination process, which is on my website. It's free. It's private. If you go drdmartin.com and get it and do it. And I had them do the exercise. That took about 30, 40 minutes. Then I had them do a linking. They had two and a half hours to do a linking process to see how many links they can make between the top three values and top three values, starting with the first to the first, first to the second, second to the first, second to the second, first to the third. You know, they go down in priority. Out of that 33 couples, 26 of them did business with each other after that conference. Wow. They're in business together. Wow. 26. Pairs. That's the kind of thing that happens. Awesome. Okay. All right. Let's uh, we're gonna we're gonna go a little bit further now on the science, Dr. Demartini, because you you talk quite often about the executive center and also the prefrontal cortex. Why are these two? Why is executive center important? Well, um, I'm going to use the cryptocurrency debacle that we've had recently yep. as an example. We had a, a decentralized ungoverned industry that allowed wild animal behavior <clears throat> to take over the markets. So hackers, people that were con people, pawn, pawn people, and legitimate people. Uh, but the, the extreme subjectively biased interpretations of what the future is going to hold, and then the extreme letdowns and a very highly ungoverned animal amygdala run behavior, which is immediate gratifying, quick get rich scheme kind of mentality. And now lawsuits and now lost fortunes and all the basic things that comes with an ungoverned functioning aspect of society. And that's because we didn't have governance over it. It's an ungoverned system. And then all of a sudden, now they're going to be bringing in the central bank digital currencies possibly, and they're going to have governance over the rules of this. And it's, and, and as a result of it, it calms it down. It takes the wild West out of it and puts it more into a functional system. So you have a possible currency that's stable, that's usable. Can't use uh, currencies that are fluctuating all over the place. No one's going to use it. It's to, you buy something, by the time you get to, to do the transaction, you just lost 10%. It could fluctuate in a day. So the same thing in our body, in our brain, we have an executive functioning center at the front, the forebrain and the prefrontal cortex that governs the amygdalas, which is a subcortical nuclei that are involved in extreme pleasure and extreme pains. When you're in survival and the predator's about to eat you or you're starving and you want to have food, that survival mentality comes in and you do that to survive. But everyday life is not always about survival. It's also about thrival. And the executive function is necessary to govern that amygdala. And the executive for, for prefrontal cortex has nerve fibers that secrete glutamate and GABA and N-acetyl aspartate, which are stimulators, sedators, and modulators that govern 
the impulses and instincts of the amygdala, which make you subjectively biased and misinterpret reality and overreact uh, as a survival mechanism and calms it down and allows you to live strategically with foresight and planning. So the executive center is crucial for reason. They used to call it systems one and systems two thinking. Systems one thinking is emotion reacting and then afterwards thinking. Go on, I can't believe I did that. And systems two thinking is thinking before you react. Now, there's time for both. You need both in life. If a car's about to run out of you, you're not going to sit there and go to be splat on the hideway. Is that going to be painful? I wonder, if, let's, I wonder what that would be like. Let's try it. You're going to just get out of the car, out of the way of the car. So you need both. But what's happening is you don't want to stay in systems one in normal settings because it's not needed. And many people, because of the habit of living there, they don't have executive function. And teenagers are a good example. They don't have myelinization in that far of the brain until around 25, 26, 27 in most cases. And so they do some pretty irrational stuff during teenage years. We all wondered how we made it through the teenage years because we did some outrageous stuff. And if you had a contest for who's done the most outrageous stuff, I would win. You know, <laughs> So I didn't have a very good amygdala until I hit my, my 20s. But, but the point is that without governance uh, in life, there's no coherency in life as far as your interaction with society and your mastery of life it helps you govern the noise in the brain so you're less noise in the brain so from a mental perspective you're more clear it helps you in business because you're more likely to create sustainable fair exchange with people because you're not exaggerating or minimizing yourself and judging with with money you can't manage money when you're emotional animals don't get wealthy governed individuals who defer gratification long term and patient individuals get wealthy. And in relationships, if you're volatile, your partner says, I'm throwing in the towel. And in society, no one wants to be around somebody that can't govern themselves. They're out of control. And in health, your health gets out of control. You're binging, you're overeating, you're fasting, you're doing this, you're causing volatilities, and uh, you cause un ungoverned behavior there. And spiritually, spirituality, in a sense, is doing something that's deeply meaningful with equanimity and a poised state where you're graced. So governance gives you empowerment in all areas of life. So living in that equanimity, you know, I guess a, a, a balanced life, how do you develop a greater self-governing executive function, Dr. Demartini? Well, that's the purpose of the Demartini method. That's exactly what it's about. Yeah. Because because if you if you perceive when you're infatuated with somebody and you perceive all positives, no negatives, you'll be out of control. Yeah. You'll go, oh, my God, I have to be I can't live without them. And I'm going to be fearing their loss and I'm going to be jealous and insecure and and dependent and, and minimize myself. And they're guaranteed to go. This isn't a match. I'm out of here. And then you're going to feel their loss and then you're going to get retaliative and all the behaviors that happen when you're ungoverned. And the same thing if you resent somebody, you're going to get revenge and you're going to have all these ungoverned behaviors. But if you do the Demartini method and find the ups to the downs and the downs, the ups, as you called it, and level the, the playing field and have equanimity, you will now act out of love with a strategy of communication that's effective in what their values are. So that's what the power of that, that tool can be. By, by living by priority and by using the Demartini method and by delegating lower priority things and sticking to higher priority things, you increase the probability of of mastery of life and empowered relationships. So there was one point I um, I read 
from, uh, I think it was from your website or one of your books. It was develop reflective awareness so that you 100% own what you see in others in yourself. <clears throat> that is really powerful, Dr. Demartini. So please talk about that point. Well, I believe there's an old biblical statement. I think it's Romans 2.1. Yes. Uh, not that I'm a big biblical uh, promoter. I just happened to find a statement there that there's two of them in there that I found pretty good. But it basically says, you know, whoever you judge, you're looking at yourself. Right. And it's a, and pluck the mode out of your own eye before you pluck it out of theirs. These are two quotes. But what I did is when I was 30, this is about 37 years ago. I was about 30 years old. I uh, decided to go to the Oxford Dictionary, the biggest, thickest dictionary I could get with the smallest print, smallest thin paper. And I went starting with A all the way to Z, and I underlined or circled every human behavioral trait that I could see a human being could display. And I found 4,628 traits in that dictionary at that time. I don't know how many there are now, but that's what I found, at least in my definition of a, of a trait, a human behavioral activity. So then what I did is I, I, I underlined it, and out in the margin, because it wasn't much of a margin, about a half inch, I wrote really tiny, who do I know displays that behavior to the most highest degree? And I put their little initials out there, you know? And then I thought, okay, now I've done that. And that let me know where I'd left off the next day when I did this day by day. And I said, now go to a moment where and when, John, I perceived myself displaying or demonstrating that behavior to someone in my life. So I asked, go to a moment where and when I perceive myself displaying or demonstrating the same specific trait action in action that I'm either admiring or despising that I've listed and line underlined. And uh, some of my likes, some of my dislike, but I just said, where do I do that? And then I kept looking through my life where I did that because I realized whatever I'm seeing in them, I have. So my job is to become fully conscious and not unconscious of those behaviors, which means they run my life. Because if I see them, they'll hook me with an infatuation or hook me with a resentment if I don't see them. I don't have reflective awareness. I have deflective words. I'm deflecting. I'm too humble to admit I have that. I'm too proud to admit I have that one. I don't want to be too proud and humble because if I'm too proud or humble, I'm not being me. When you're proud, you're exaggerating you. When you're humble, you're minimizing you. When you are you, you love people. So I went in there and identified. And I didn't stop until I could see that I had it to the same degree as the individual that I had perceived being the most extreme. And when I did that, it was really humbling on some of them. And then I went, hmm, if I had labeled it a positive trait and I admired it, I asked, what are the downsides? Because everything's got two sides. And if it's a trait I despise, what are the upsides? Because if it's something I despise and I label it bad and I have this moral hypocrisy around it, I'm doing it, but I'm pretending like they're doing it and I don't like what they're doing. That's a moral hypocrisy and a hypocritical thing. And uh, I then realized that if if nature still has it on the planet, it must be serving somebody or it would have gone extinct. Evolutionary biology. So so it must serve a purpose. My job is to find it. And so I would discover how it was useful and how I used it in different settings and why I was doing it in the settings I was doing it in. And then my judgments of these, I'd find the downsides to what I thought was admired. I found the upsides of this. And then I would level it. And then I'd go to the next one. I'd go down the dictionary growing my vocabulary, then I'd get the next one, underline it. Okay, who's got the most extreme example? 
Where do I do it? When do I do it? Who do I do it to? Who perceives me that way? Match it quantitatively, qualitatively. Then what's the benefit or drawback to balance it? And I would neutralize it. Then I'd go to the next one. And that was one of the greatest exercises of preemptive uh, reflective awareness to help me not react to others and to realize who am I to judge them and allowed me to have more appreciation and love for people for who they are. Beautiful. I love that. And how important is developing a gratitude mindset to uh, greater self-governing executive function? Well, I was born on Thanksgiving Day, mm -hmm. right, in 1954. And uh, so I'll be 68 in November. And my mom, when I was four, 64 years ago, uh, she put me to sleep. She said, before you go to bed, I want you to be counting your blessings. Think, be thankful for what happened today and make a list of it. And just keep thinking of what you're grateful for until you fade into sleep. Because if you're grateful for what you got, you get more to be grateful for the next day. And you'll sleep with more deep sleep. You'll have a better sleep because you're grateful. So she taught me that when I was four. And um, I probably have the largest collection of gratitude uh, list 33 volumes, 10,000 pages of them now. I've got a lot. So I keep a list on it. I've already typed your name in it. I've, it's already in the thing. The, I had the opportunity to be interviewed by yourself and everything else and make a difference in people's lives or whatever. So I'm a firm believer that if you're grateful for what you have, you get more to be grateful for. And gratitude is, is a sign that you see things as they are, not as you skewed them with your subjective bias. And there's a deep gratitude when you see both sides. And there's a superficial kind of gratitude when you go, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, when somebody supports you. And a ungratitude when they challenge you. But when you see that support and challenge are always paired off like a yin and yang, synchronously, uh, a Taoist understanding, you realize that there's a deeper gratitude. You see that the people that are supporting you are keeping you juvenilely dependent. There's downsides. The people that are challenging you are making you precociously independent. That's upsides. And when you see that they're actually going on at the same time and you have kind of a non-local entangled pair of opposites, like two particle and nanoparticles in the mind at the same time, you're fully conscious. And that's when you actually have a true deep gratitude. And that gratitude is liberating and inspiring. Beautiful. So on that point, Dr. Dimati, I'm going to recap your wisdom so far. So in the, in the point about developing greater self-governing executive function, seeing things in a balanced way, develop the art of being able to see both sides of any situation, develop a gratitude mindset, having a realistic understanding of yourself, people, and life, identify your most important values and live intrinsically aligned to what you value most. And then to the point early, which I raised, which was so powerful, is develop that reflective awareness so that you 100% own what you see in others, actually in yourself. Yeah. Now, well, you know what's interesting People say, I would love to have love and intimacy. Yeah. I, 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 if I go into a room and, uh, you know, and speak and I ask, how many of you want to be loved and appreciated for who you are? Every hand goes up. And how many of you would love to be able to have a life that also has an endearing love and intimacy? All the hands go up. I said, let me define intimacy. I hope everybody's listening. This is a really cool definition. Most people think of intimacy as the, the lights are dimmed. You're embracing somebody and kissing somebody and you're getting ready to have some sex or something. That's how most people think of intimacy. And that's possibly a form of passion. I don't know. Yes. But that's not what I'm defining intimacy. 
Intimacy is the realization that whatever you see in any other human being, you have fully to the same degree inside yourself and that you have nothing to judge in them. You don't put them on a pedestal or a pit. You put them in your heart. And then you have pure reflective awareness and nothing's missing in you and nothing's missing in them. That's intimacy. Wow. Wow. I love that. I love that. So on that same point, because it's leading nice into this next part, so what are the signs of living with a self-governing executive function that empowers and transforms all the areas of your life? You're able to say no to opportunists that are projecting the values onto you for their own objectives and say, thank you, but no, thank you politely. Yeah. You're so busy doing what's highest on your priority that you can legitimately say that's not the highest priority right now. And I try to stick live by priority. Thank you for the opportunity, but I'll pass now. And you do it diplomatically and get on with what is the most important thing. But remember this, the most important thing in your life that brings the most fulfillment is something you can't wait to get up in the morning and do that serves people and fulfills something high in other people's values. So you're not here to sacrifice for other people. You're here to find a win-win sustainable relationship where you're doing something that is inspiring to you in a way that's inspiring to other people. That's the magic. That's the game. Understood. Okay. And we talk about um, transcendence. I've, I've listened to some of your talks. Trans and I want to get onto that soon. Um, but the, the seven areas of life that you mentioned have been, you know, spirituality, mentally, vocationally, financially, family, physically, and socially. Of all those seven areas of life, Dr. Demartini, What's the greatest growth factor? Well, my personal feeling is that love, which I call the synthesis and synchronicity of all complementary opposites. Yeah. You know, if you if you have if you have a partner and they're nice at times and other times they're mean, at the moment they're nice, somebody else will be mean. And the moment they're mean, somebody else will be nice. If you can see both of them at the same moment synchronously. You're stable, you're poised, you're present, you're powerful, you're purposeful, you're patient, and you're productive. And you feel love. And the reason I say that is not just because it's just a nice little theory. I've taken well over 100,000 people in my seminar and actually got them to that state. And they had tears of gratitude. See, when something supports your values, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is anabolic, which is basically alkanizing. And it causes a rest and digest response. And it causes more of a delta wave leading towards a delta wave in the brain. And when you're somebody's challenging your values, it causes a catabolism, uh, more of an acidity and a breakdown and more of a sympathetic response, a fight or flight response. And it activates the beta waves in the brain. But if you balance those synchronously, your heart rate variability is up the most. You have the most resilience and adaptability to whatever happens in your life. And you get more of an alpha theta, around eight cycles per second. You get three cycles over here, 13 cycles over here, but you get about eight cycles in the center. The moment you get exactly centered, you get what is called an alpha theta, right at that junction, gamma wave. The gamma wave is around a 40 cycle per second system that synchronizes the entire brain, creates a spontaneous integration of the brain brings tears to the eyes and aha, eureka moment of inspiration and insight. That's the place to live. That's what happens if you balance. And therefore love allows that to maximize. 
And that applies in all seven areas of life and helps you empower those areas of life. And now you're getting to study what you love to study, do what you love to do at work, love watching the growth of your finances, love the person you're with, love the friends and family, the people you're socially interacting with and leading, love your physical body and appreciate it. Look in the mirror and go, wow, that's hot, baby. You can make a love with yourself almost. And then you're also in love with life, which is true spirituality. Absolutely. So here's where I want to go now, Doctor, because we're going to bring all these points together, love, divinity, um, transcendence. You mentioned that there's a hidden order that a few people ever get to see. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, that's, that statement is something that came to me when I was reading at age 18, uh, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz's book, The Discourse on Metaphysics, first chapter, first paragraph. He said that no human being could improve upon the perfection that's already present. And that's a deep philosophical thing that, that was satired by Voltaire, and many people debated it. But it brought a tear of inspiration. And whenever you get a tear of inspiration, usually a sign that you're on track with what's really meaningful to you. And so what I found is that when you're conscious, when you're infatuated with somebody and you're conscious of the upside and unconscious of the downside, your unconscious is all the negatives that you're ignorant of about the person. When you're resentful, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides, and you're ignorant of the upsides. But when you're actually cognizant of both sides, you see both simultaneously, you're mindful. Now, Claude Shannon, who is a gentleman who, after two other gentlemen got their Nobel Prize, he added to information theory. He said that disorder is missing information and order is getting all the information. When you see that all the information that's now available, you have order. When you have missing information, you have disorder. And there's a tendency to go to entropy and tendency to go to disorder in life for most people and for life. So it's interesting for, for existence. So the second you ask questions to awaken, intuitive questions that awaken you to see both sides simultaneously and take the unconscious and now make it conscious to make you fully conscious, you discover what was hidden from your mind, and I call it the hidden order, and you're brought to tears of gratitude for something you couldn't see that you were emotional about that you now love. So yeah, love is the, the accessing vehicle for the hidden order, and the hidden order is always present. We just happen to skew our perceptions of what's going on. I have an exercise in my Breakthrough Experience program, which is my signature program, which I've done 1,151 times. And I took um, people and I said, all right, take something in your life that you think is terrible, that you really resent somebody over. Great. Okay, that now go find out what the trait is. What specific trait action in action do you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that you despise most? Boom. Now go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying that. Own it 100%. Now go to the moment when they did it. How in that moment did it serve you? Well, it didn't. No. How did it serve you? You chose not to see how it served you. How did it? And hold them accountable until they get the benefits. Once the benefits equal the drawbacks, they go, I'm not resentful now. Great. And I'm not judging myself now. Great. You're loving them. You're loving you. Great. Now you realize that you were unconscious of that information that was sitting there the whole time. And you chose not to look at it. And that was your subjective bias. And then you did a false attribution bias by projecting it on them, thinking that they did that to you. When in fact, you did that to you by your misinterpretation of what they did. Wow. And now you're empowered because you can't control them. You can't control their action, but you can control your perception, decisions, and actions. And you're now in master of your life. 
people are victims of history when they have false attribution bias extrinsically, but they're actually a master of destiny when they can take command of their perception, decisions, and actions and see things in a balanced way and liberate themselves from the emotional bondage. Is that, Dr. Dr. Demartini, is that, um, if we go, go to spiritual traditions, is that the same as um, enlightenment, getting to the soul, the spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Atman? Is that the divine order you're talking about? Yes, divine, divine or diva means to, to shine. It means light. Yes. So in Buddhism, they would call it enlightenment. You're now a bodhisattva that's reached a, you know, you've, you've got, you've blown out the volatile flame of your lower nature of judgment, and you now have a moment of awareness, enlightenment. Um, you could call it a Christ consciousness if you're a Christian. You could call it Atma, which is the soul. You could call it Satori. You could call it Moksha, liberation. Yes. rejuvenation regeneration i mean there's a thousand names that mystics and scientists uh, have called it you could call it the strange attractor in chaos theory you could call it the authentic self you could call it the essence of being the ground of being i mean i could go down the list of a thousand terms that various writers and philosophers and thinkers have called it called it the empyrean by the ancient greek philosopher you could call it the unity behind all pairs of opposites you could call it the synthesis of the dialectic by zeno or hegel Whoever you want to go play with in the language, they have a way of saying the same message. That's exactly right. Okay, we'll move on to the next segment. You could call it Krishna. You could call it Krishna because Arjuna was suffering in the Kurukshetra, whatever it is, war that they was facing. Kurukshetra, the royal war. And and I'm not pronouncing it right, but but uh, when he's sitting there going, he's got to kill his cousin. He doesn't want to kill his cousin. And Krishna says, "Look, you have a, a role. You can't kill a soul anyway. It's it it lives eternally, right?" So you, you 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 do your duty, you know. You're one of the cast, and that's your job as a warrior. And you go and do your duty, and not attach. And he was trying to teach him not to be attached, and not to be emotional about this. And so Krishna represented the the governed executive function over the amygdala, in a sense, and the and the enlightened awareness over the person that's got an emotional reaction that's hypocritical. You brought home. You brought it straight to my heart. Dr. Demartini, I mean, obviously the wonderful teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. So that's that's straight to my heart. Thank you for that. The Gita has a great story in it. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I've summarized the Gita many times. I've read many versions of the Gita, but but uh, the Mahabharata war, you know, it's that's what it was. That's the message. Absolutely. And uh, but but Sri Aurobindo in his divine life divine has a great way of saying that in his own way. I mean, whether Eastern mysticism or Western science, in, in particle physics, it's the alchemy of putting together the particle and antiparticle that are entangled and weaving them together and returning them to gamma photons. That's the modern version. Or it's the particle accelerator where you're taking positron electrons and accelerating along a magnetic field and birthing gamma frequencies that birth new, fo fo new uh, particles that you're discovering. That's the alchemy of today, right? So it, 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 no matter what approach you do science religion philosophy whatever field i can see that that same law is applying in chemistry you're taking positive negative valencies and making neutral salts and gas and systems to create the the octet rule the lewis formula for chemistry you know for for physics it's balancing an equation for mathematics it's finding the symmetry beautiful elegant order that's sitting in the mathematical equations and simplicity so in psychology, it's maximum simplicity. In hermetic teachings, it's the, the pursuit of maximum simplicity. Or in Tar Thomas Hardy's idea, 
It's, it's uh, basically the pursuit of the divine, magnificent perfection. Whatever way you want to look at it, thousands of people have said it the same way. I love that, um, Dr. DiMartini, you're bringing science and spirituality together. I know we've got the naysayers and there's, uh, you know, various camps around this stuff, but uh, they do lead to the same path. I'm a firm believer in that for sure. Well, if it's truth, it does. See, yeah. you have what is called, you have um, anthropomorphic, religious, amygdala-driven, punishment-rewarding deities, which is basically a projection of our own fears and fantasies onto gods. And then we make up false gods all the time. And then so then you have theists that do that, which is the basic level, the banal level of moral constructs. And then you have the anti-theist, theist, you know, the atheist, that are counterbalancing that. Both of them are charged black and white, you know, right and wrong moralist or whatever about their opinion. And, and they can't, they're blind to it. They can't see the both sides. I just did an interview about that, about two of those people that are extremists that way. And then you have the true divine, you, the true divine and the true laws of physics, the conservation, uh, the, the true, you know, expression of energy. No scientist knows what energy is. It's still a mystery. We yeah. just know how to use it. And, with it, and convert it into different forms, but we don't know what it is. So it's still the same mystery, and it's really the same message at the most abstract level of contemplation. So true science and true religion, no, they don't fight. Right, absolutely. In fact, okay. in fact look at look at Max Planck. Max Planck believed in a panpsychic consciousness underlying space, time, energy, and matter. Yes. Uh, Schrodinger believed yeah. there's one mind. He was a mystic of the the Hindu, uh, the, you know, Vedanta. Yes, and you got people like. Uh, you know, Newton, who wanted to know, you know, the divine master plan. There, yeah. there's, there's some of the greatest mystics and si were scientists, and scientists were mystics. Look at look at Ramanujan in yeah. India from, from Mahas or whatever, uh, Madras or whatever. You know, here's this guy that re received these divine revelations, apparently, and gave these mathematical systems that the scientists were overwhelmed by. How did, where did this come from? And it turned out later to be brilliant stuff that they didn't even have, they didn't even have the, the, the proofs yet for but here he, uh, he gets it out of his vision, you know? So you you, that, you you get people like that. And by the time he was 32 and he died, he had already got honors at the highest levels from mathematicians for for a, a revelation that, he, that they couldn't explain. Absolutely. All right. So we'll hit the quick rounds. What would you change in any area of life, not just business? Not to change. Wow, love it, love it. That's fine. That's okay. You know, I, I always say, if if you're wanting to change you relative to others, you've injected other people's values and tried to be authentically living in their values. And if you're trying to change anybody else relative to you, you're projecting your values onto them and expecting them and your values, and both are futile. I have nothing to change. I, you know, people say, well, are you sure you should tell people that you did that in your life? I said, I have nothing to judge on that. That's exactly what I needed to be where I am today. If you love what I am today, you love all my parts because those are the parts that led me to what I'm doing. Oh, well, what will people think about that? It's not about what they think about that. The only people that judge that are the people that it's reminding about the things they're judging themselves and they're upset with themselves about. You only want to fix or change people on the outside that represents a part of you you haven't loved on the inside. So there's nothing to fix. <laughs> wow. Awesome. That's the first time I've heard that answer. That's beautiful. I love that. What are you grateful for? Well, Anything I can't say thank you for is my baggage. Anything I can say thank you for is my fuel. So if I discover something I'm not grateful for, it I have the responsibility to go back and look again until I can say thank you. Wow. And I am fooled many times. 
<laughs> and when I'm full, my job and my accountability is to go back and look again. Love it. Okay. All right. In um, in your Inspired Destiny book, you had a segment about how to deal with. And I kind of liken that, that some of the areas they were really, uh, you know, pointing towards mental health issues that we all have. We all got some level of psychosis, I'm sure. Um, what would you say about dealing with mental health issues? I had a, there was a great statement, I think it was from Sadhguru, someone says, you know, the way out is the way in. And I think when you're talking about some of the introspection and your self-reflection that we have to kind of employ here, how do you deal with the mental health issues of today? Well, first of all, mental health issues could range. There's a lot of different ranges. It could be a spectrum of mania to depression to bipolar swings to cyclothymic to all the way to euthymia. It could be grief syndrome. It could be phobia. It could be narcissism. I mean, there's thousands of names, dissociated identity. There's thousands of different terms. But really, all of them all boil down to an imbalanced ratio of perceptions. So what I do is I take it piecemeal at a time and rebalance all the perceptions that they have. And I'm amazed at how many of those conditions aren't even really conditions. They're feedback mechanisms to them to try to help them become conscious of themselves. And so I, I, I look at it as all of those symptoms are on the way, not in the way. They're just misinterpreted and put labels on so people can sell pharmaceutical. Interesting. Okay. All right. What are the secrets of financial mastery? Well, money circulates through the economy, those who value at least to those who value it most. And from those who have the least certainty about it to, to those who have the most certainty about it, if you value wealth building, you'll probably build wealth. If you don't, you'll probably value, rebuild, and put your money into whatever you value instead. So if you value buying immediate gratifying consumables that depreciate, uh, they go down in value, you're probably not going to get ahead financially. But if you value buying assets that serve and that actually give you a return, you're probably going to get ahead. So your hierarchy of values that dictate your financial destiny. Tell me what you value. If you have a high value of wealth, you're going to want to make sure you do something that serves people to generate it. And you're going to want to do something that buys assets to keep building it. If you have a low value of wealth, you're probably not going to care of serving and you're not probably going to care of keeping it. You're going to buy other things to make you feel better about yourself, living through other people's brands vicariously instead of building a brand that serves. Got it. What about the law of fair exchange? Law of fair exchange is the, probably the most significant uh, law that governs all of economic transactions. Yeah. If you want to build a business, if you want to build wealth, it's all going to be based on how efficient you are at maintaining sustainable fair exchange. If you if, if you exaggerate yourself in a company and puff yourself up and think you're more important than the customer and the employee, you'll eventually have a union fight you and you'll eventually have clients that leave you. And that'll humble you with hubris until you get back into equilibrium. And if you go below that and you sacrifice for your customers, I mean, for your customers, um, you'll not have a profit. You sacrifice for your employees and be too nice employees, they'll have anarchy. So nature then lifts you up and says, damn it, I deserve better than that. I deserve more than that. So it lifts you back up. So all the symptoms in business and in economics are nothing but feedback mechanisms to guide you into the most authentic, equanimous, sustainable, fair exchange state. The nice. real you. The nice. real you lives there. Yep. We've got two to three minutes now, Dr. Demartini. So there's a real rapid round. 
in your 40 plus years in the field of self-mastery and personal transformation, what are the daily habits that will most change your life and leadership skills? That did change my life. Uh, I learned it really significant at age 27, how important it is to prioritize. So I made a list of the highest priority actions and I delegated everything off, off my plate. I only teach research and write today. My teaching concurs one-on-one -on -one with consults, one on uh, you know workshops, seminars, keynote speeches, podcasts, webinars, radio, television, newspapers, magazines, uh, blogs, uh, movies, anything that's involved in teaching, I do those in priority and the rest is delegated. I don't do anything else. I research every day, I write every day, I teach every day and I travel on my ship. I'm traveling right now on my way to Immigordon from uh, Edinburgh. So I'm, I'm, I'm sailing out in the, in the ocean right this minute as we speak. Oh, so I'm on my ship sailing around the world. I go around the world on my ship. And so I research, write, travel and teach every day. The rest mm. of us delegate. I do not do anything uh -huh. else. I don't cook. I have specialists that cook. I have six chefs. I have uh, the, my captains. I've got my drivers. I got my pilots. I got everything where everything else is delegated away. I, I, I even go, when I go to my girlfriend, I say, look, I said, if I was to get Hugh Jackman, George Clooney, and Brad Pitt, and Gerard Butler to make love with you on my behalf and delegated that, would you still love me? And every single time she said, I'd love you even more. So I delegate. <laughs> that's a joke, man. That was a joke. <laughs> I love it. Okay, that's, that is that is fabulous. I love that. Okay, what one wisdom bite would you share with your younger self? You're on track. Keep going. Thank you. I love you. All right. Okay. What is your one parting advice on personal transformation to aspiring business leaders? Don't waste your time on being anybody but you. The magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself. And don't compare yourself to other people. Compare your daily actions to your own highest values and priorities that serve with most efficient, effective, sustainable exchange. Go focus on that priority. The rest of it takes care of itself. Dr. Martini, oh my God, this was just absolutely fantastic. You're an absolute inspiration. You have been for many years, all right? So thank you for your wisdom bites. I'm sure we're going to change some lives along the way. You're doing your bit as a global educator, um, you know, to elevate and prioritize humanity. So thank you. Thank you so much for this session. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on here. And um, yeah, just thank you. Appreciate and, the time. And just for the listeners here, um, Dr. Martini is sharing um, a free gift. It will be in the notes at um, dmartini.inc astronomical. And I will have that in the notes of the podcast. But again, Dr. Martini. Yeah, can I say something about that? Uh, of course. The, 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 the little gift that I'd love to give everybody is a live presentation I did at a planetarium to a YPO group, Young President's Organization. Yes. And we just got through watching the universe on this planetarium. And then I did a presentation on how to expand your awareness and potential to have a universal view so you can make a global difference. So if you have any desire to make a contribution on the planet, this gift is worth getting. I promise you, you'll, 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 you'll watch or listen to this. You'll listen to it more than once. It's an inspiring presentation on the, the power of an astronomical vision to make a global difference. So it's, it's, it's a good one. So that's, and also the, the, um, yeah, just 
and, and take advantage of the website, the, the, the value determination process. It's free, it's private, and it's, a, it's really important to find out what's really important to you. Not what you think it is, but what your life demonstrates. Thank you again for the opportunity to be with you on the on your show. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Demartini. Love you. All the very best. Safe travels to you and um, keep doing what you're doing. You're changing the world in your way. Thank you. Thank you. So you heard in this episode how Dr. Demartini beautifully connected the wisdom of the ages to the path of self-mastery. And so the four key takeaways are knowing your unique hierarchy of values or highest priorities is the most important place to start if you intend to expand to the next level of your empowerment. Number two, embrace the duality of life or the two-sided being. See things in a balanced way and develop the art of being able to see both sides of any situation. Number three, develop a gratitude mindset that you see how every event, both supportive and challenging, is on the way and instructive for your life. And number four, develop reflective awareness so that you 100% own what you see in others in yourself. I hope that you found today's session valuable. If so, please follow me on Instagram at outram.richard and post your comments. Thank you again. Until the next podcast.